Hey, well, good morning, Lake Point family. It's so good to see all of you guys back again, especially if this is your first time. Uh, I would like to say a special welcome to all of you guys that are joining us as guests today, but also to the, you guys that are joining us for your second time, because I know many of you came at one of our uh, seven candlelight services here at this campus, and uh, you're joining us back, so welcome back. We're really glad you're here. Or if you're joining us online or one of our other campuses, man, we're really glad to have you here this morning. Let me be the, one of the first to tell you Happy New Year. Really excited about 2020. This isn't just a new year, by the way. It's a new decade, Okay. So you're going to have to up your game when it comes to resolutions this year, all right? Because this is the big one, all right? You're going to have to make these really good. And I love the new year because it's an opportunity for us to just hit the reset button. And we take evaluation of the last 12 months of our lives and we think about all the things that we accomplished or the things that we had hoped to accomplish that didn't necessarily come to fruition. But this is a great opportunity for us to start again. So many of us are looking at our, our current circumstances in our lives, and we're going, man, I think it's about time for me to make a few changes. So we look at relationships in our lives, and we go, man, there's some relationships that could be better. And so I'm going to make a renewed effort in terms of investing in some of the relationships, my family, my spouse, loved ones, my coworkers, and that sort of thing. And those are great. Um, it's great resolutions in investing relationships. Some of you are looking at finances and you're going, okay, 2019 was a total train wreck. We're gonna start 2020 off on the right foot. We're gonna take a, a new look at how we spend our money and where our money goes and all that kind of stuff. So you're making adjustments when it comes to your finances. Some of you take a look at your health and you're going, okay, 2019 was really good to me this year. And uh, 2020, I'm gonna make a renewed effort to be more healthy. Thinking about all that holiday weight, it's about time that I lose all that holiday weight from like 2018 or 2017. It's about time I got to get rid of all that holiday weight. All of these are great, and the reason they're good is because most of those resolutions that we make are, are resolutions that are within our control. They're things that we have control over in our life. There are certain things that we can do, prioritize in our life that will make things better. However, some of you take an evaluation of where you are currently, and there's a lot of circumstances that, that are not favorable, that are not good, and you don't have any control over them. Matter of fact, you take a look at your life and you go, well, in 2019, I thought I'd be in a different place. Matter of fact, I'm not where I really wanted to be, and when I take a look at where I am right now, I'm not really happy with where I am right now. I'm not where I want to be, and I certainly don't like where... I'm at. And you can apply this particular gap to a lot of different areas of your life. Think about it professionally. There are many of you that had hoped for a, a, a move up in your career, maybe a, a raise this year, and you're taking a look at your current circumstances in 2020, and you don't like, you're not where you want to be, and you don't like where you're at. Maybe some of you are looking at relationships, and there are relationships in your life that you know should be better. But when it comes to fixing those relationships, there's so many things that are just out of your control. You don't like where you're at. Where you don't, you're not where you want to be, and you certainly don't like where you're at. You think about personally where you are in your relationship with God. And man, there's a lot of things where you just go, I don't like, I don't, I'm not where I want to be, but I don't like where I'm at. So here's the question. If resolutions fix those things, or they're supposed to fix, I should say, they, they're supposed to fix those things that we can control in our life. What are we supposed to do when there's a gap that exists in our life in areas that we don't have any control? 
What are we supposed to do? What do we fill that gap with? Well, I'll tell you what most people fill that gap with. Most people fill it with frustration or anger. We just look at the inequities in our life. We look at the fact that we're not where we want to be. We don't like where we're at. And we just get mad and we get frustrated. And we carry that air about us all throughout our year. Some of us fill that gap. I'd say most of us fill that gap with worry, anxiety, and fear. Right? We take a look at it and go, I'm not, I'm not where I should be. No, I should be there. And I certainly don't like where I'm at right now. And it creates a lot of anxiety and fear about our future. Am I ever going to get there? Are my dreams ever going to be realized? You know, are my hopes ever going to come to fruition? We fill that gap with anxiety and fear. Many of us, I should say, fill that gap with despair. And we just look and go, I guess, I guess things are always going to be this way. Things are never going to turn out the way that I hope. I don't like where I'm at, but I guess I'm stuck here. The reality is, is when that kind of a gap exists in our life, we fill it with all kinds of things. But Jesus offers another solution today. He says there's another, th- there's another way that you can fill that gap in your life, that gap that says I'm not where I want to be and I don't like where I'm at, so what do you do? And Jesus says, number one, we fill it with a right kind of thinking. Now, I want you to take a look at our passage today. It's in Matthew chapter 6. It's a very familiar passage, and we're going to start in verse 25. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, to which many people would go, well, that's not very helpful, Jesus, because if you were to take a look at my life and the circumstances that I'm in, you'd understand why I feel anxious why my days are consumed with worry and fear or why I'm frustrated or I've just given up. But Jesus is not making just some spiritual platitude and say, ah, don't worry about it kind of thing. When Jesus makes the statement, don't be anxious, it's because he has a solution. We continue on. He says, don't be worried about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body and what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And then he says this word. He says, I want you to look at the birds of the air. And I've highlighted that word look because in the original language when Jesus was speaking, that word could actually be translated think about, consider, like ponder the birds at the air. They neither sow nor reap, gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father, your heavenly Father feeds them. Take a look. He says, are you not more valuable than they. And which of you by, by being anxious can add a single hour to the span of your life? Now this, honestly, this little passage right here seems a little out of place in his argument if you were to read it in its context. But here's what Jesus was saying. He was asking a rhetorical question because he knew the answer. The answer to who can add a day to the span of your life, the answer is simple. It's none of you. And here's what happens. When circumstances don't turn out the way that we want them to, when life goes awry in our, in our life, things don't turn out the way that we had hoped, anxiety and fear takes its place because we begin to realize what we've always feared is that there's so many things in our life that are completely out of our control, aren't there? I mean, a doctor's diagnosis, downturn in the economy, a change in the company's organization, um, uh, people's choices in our, in our close family. The, uh, you know, there's all kinds of things that we just can't simply control. And here's, what, here's the point that Jesus is making. You're right. There's a lot of things in your life that are out of your control. But nothing in your life 
is out of mind, right? He continues on and says, why are you anxious about clothing? Here's the word again. The word consider is the same word that he used for the word look. It means to think about. Think about the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Here's what Jesus says that you can do when you find yourself with a gap between where I want to be and where I'm at right now. He says you need to fill it with a right kind of thinking. Because when that gap exists, man, our thinking goes all over the place. We don't think straight. When we're anxious or fearful or frustrated, man, we're not thinking straight, right? I think about, there was a story in the Bible um, where Moses was leading the Israelites out of Egyptian captivity. Do you remember this story? And he leads them out of the gates, out into the wilderness, and they're on their way out into the, towards the promised land. And all of a sudden, Pharaoh has a change of heart, and he begins to chase down the Israelites. And all of a sudden, the Israelites saw themselves backed into a corner. Behind them was the Red Sea. In front of them was the uh, Pharaoh's army. And they turned to Moses. And you remember what they did? And they cried out and they complained. They said, Moses! Did you really lead us out here into the wilderness only to, di only to die by Pharaoh's sword? We had it better back in Egypt. And Moses turns to God and God does an amazing miracle in front of them. What does he do? He parts the Red Sea and the Egyptians are able to walk across on dry land. And in an instant, the, Israel, the, the Egyptian army is decimated and they're killed. But only two chapters later, the Israelites start to get hungry and so they turned to Moses and they said, Moses, did you lead us out here in the wilderness only to starve? And they begin to, they begin to become fearful and anxious about their current circumstances. So Moses turns to God and God provides manna from heaven. And I thought about this. I've, I've, I've seen this story played out in my life before. Let me remember it. Oh, yes. I'm standing in the middle of Disney World, the happiest place in the world, right? And we're 15 minutes past Lunchtime, and my kids look at me and go, Dad, we're starving. Are you going to let us starve to death here? And I thought, yes, that was my plan. We drove 18 hours to Orlando and paid an ungodly amount of money to bring you into the, you know how much it costs to stand where you're standing right now. And my whole plan this whole time was to let you starve at Disney World, right? When circumstances don't turn out the way that we had hoped, our thinking goes wrong. We don't think. We, we think things like, I guess things are always going to be this way. Things are never going to work out. You're, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. I should be somewhere else. You should be a lot further along than you are. I don't have, I'm not going to have enough in the end. Everybody else's relationships, I guess, are going to be better than mine. God must have forgotten about me or he doesn't care about me. And here's what Jesus is saying. He says, your problem is you're not thinking. You're not thinking right. He says, think about it for a second. God didn't lead you into the wilderness to die. What did he do? He led them into the wilderness where he could demonstrate his goodness and his faithfulness to them, right? And Jesus says, he said, just look. Look at the birds of the air. Consider the, the flowers of the field. Consider the lilies of the field. He says, if God is interested and involved in such the minutia detail of our world to be considered concerned with birds and flowers, 
How much more in control, if he's in control of that, how much more in control of your life is he? Considering how much he cares for you. We know that God is in control. We know that God is good. I love Romans chapter eight, verse 31. It says this, if God is for us, then who can be against us? If God is for us, friends, let me, let me ask the, answer this question for you. God is for you. He's for you. He's not against you. Who can be against us? And it continues on. He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God proved how faithful and good he is. Just look at the cross. He's in control and he's good. All you and I need to do then is to begin to apply the right kind of thinking when we find ourselves stuck in this gap or we find ourselves stuck in the wilderness. We need to apply what we know to be true about God to our current circumstances. We know that he's in control and we know that he's good. Here's one of the things that I've, I've learned actually just recently. Uh, here's what I found. Anxiety, the difference between anxiety and faith. Anxiety, fear, worry, all of that. Anxiety is listening to your heart. Faith is speaking to your heart. Do you see the difference? The power, there's a power that comes when we begin to apply what we know to be true about God, who he is and what he's done to our current life circumstances. It's what we fill the gap with right thinking. And it comes by having right priorities. Take a look at uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. He says, but seek first. That means prioritize the kingdom of God. That means God's rule and his reign in your life. Your pursuit of God. He says, prioritize your pursuit of God. And hear me on this. You need to know that the primary means that God establishes and uh, his, his rule in our life, he directs our life, he comforts us, he guides us, he gives us wisdom and direction in our life is through a consistent pursuit of God in his word, prayer, and in worship. There's another story in the Old Testament that I love. Um, Moses finds himself in a bit of a crisis Okay, the, uh, he, they're, they're camped out in the wilderness and he looks out and the Amalekite army is setting up camp right across the valley from them. And this is a formidable army. They know about the Amalekites. They are fierce warriors. And so, man, anxiety and fear fills the camp. But Moses grabs his, his chief strategist and he says, Joshua, here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna grab an army and you're gonna go down and you're gonna fight them in the valley. And while you're fighting them in the valley, I'm gonna go up in the hillside overlooking the valley and I'm gonna pray for you guys, okay? At that point, if I was Joshua, I'd go, Moses, why don't you go in the valley? I'll go up and pray. I mean, I, I mean, kind of goes both ways. I mean, I wouldn't, but this is, but Josh goes along, Joshua goes along with it. And he says, okay, because he understands the power of prayer. And so Joshua takes an army and he, they go down and they start fighting the Amalekites. Meanwhile, Moses and two of his servants go up on top of the mountain and Moses begins to pray over the Israelites in the valley that were in the battle. And as he prayed, he lifted his arms over the, over the battlefield and he would begin to pray. And here's what the Bible says. As long as his hands were lifted in battle uh, or lifted in prayer over the battle, uh, the Israelites were victorious. 
things were actually going their way, but eventually Moses got tired and he lowered his arms. And the Bible says the tide turned at that point and the Amalekites gained the upper hand and they actually began to slaughter the Israelites. And so his servants noticed that. And so what they did is they sat Moses down on a rock and they lifted his hands for him, right? And as his, he lifted his hands again in prayer to God, all of a sudden, the tide of the battle shifted once again, and the Israelites were winning, and they were victorious that day. And here's what Moses learned, a valuable principle, is that it's through his priority or prioritizing the pursuit of God in his life that his, the prevailing power of God was unleashed in his life and the lives of the Israelites. The principle is the same for you and I, that when we pursue God, we prioritize our relationship with him through his word, through prayer, through worship. The power of God, the prevailing power that prevails in the, in the wilderness is unleashed in your life and in mine. Somebody in the hallway caught me earlier and said, you gonna tell a plain story? I always tell plain stories. Yes, I'm gonna tell a plain story. I thought of one this morning, so just because that guy said it. But I was learning to fly years ago and we had to do stall training. I think I've told you about that. Stalls are incredibly intimidating for me. That's when you fly the plane in such a way that it begins, that it no longer flies and falls out of the air, begins to plummet, okay? So you could see why it was so intimidating. Well, there's one, one particular stall that you have to learn that's, that's in, just especially intimidating. It's called a power on stall. This is where Everything that you know to do to put the plane into the air, meaning pulling back on the yoke and adding full power, you could do all of those things and the plane would still stall out and fall to the earth. It usually happens on takeoff. It's one of the most critical phases of flight on takeoff because of the danger of the power on stall. Here's what can happen. You could be at full power and you could have the nose at such an angle that the plane cannot fly up anymore and it actually begins to lose altitude, eventually stalls and falls towards the earth. And you gotta practice these things. So you get up there and you put full power in and you start to pull back and all of a sudden you notice that the altimeter's going down and the plane begins to fall towards the earth. It's an incredibly, uh, I would say, very tense moment in the cockpit of any plane that's in experiencing a power on stall. And here's what you want to do in that moment. What you want to do is you want to add more power and pull back on the, pull back on the yoke to be able to pull yourself up out of the dive to gain more altitude. But actually when you do that, you don't have any more power to give. Everything's already in. When you pull back on the yoke, it actually increases, it increases the stall and you fall faster. So here's what you're trained to do and it's completely counterintuitive. The best thing that you can do when you notice that you're entering a power on stall is to lower your nose. The plane is beginning to fall and the best thing you can do is put your nose down. And as you put your nose down, the airspeed begins to pick up over the wings and your altitude begins to fly and you're flying again. And I thought, man, there's that principle. The best thing that you and I can do when we get stuck in the wilderness or this gap between I'm not where I wanna be and I don't like where I'm at is lower your nose. Yeah. Yeah. When you and I prioritize the pursuit of God in prayer, in his word, his worship, we unleash a power from God that allows us to prevail in the wilderness. Now that power, it may look differently for each different situation. The power might come in the form of wisdom, an idea of how to tackle the problems that you're facing in that 
It may come in the form of strength or courage or a changed attitude. God may actually change your mind about your current circumstances. He may give you the ability uh, to have comfort or perseverance in the most difficult circumstance. But make no mistake, when you got an eye prioritize the practice of God's presence, the pursuit of him and his word in prayer and in worship, we unleash the power of God to prevail even in the most difficult of circumstances. The third thing that I think Jesus points out in this particular passage, not just that we should have, we should apply right kind of thinking or right priority, but that we should have a right perspective. There's a curious phrase in Matthew chapter six. He says, I want you to think about the lilies of the field. And I was reading this devotional a couple of months ago and uh, it was by a guy named Oswald Chambers. Now, Oswald Chambers is an old theologian, wrote a lot of devotionals. Matter of fact, one devotional you might have heard of, it's called My Utmost for His Highest. And I was reading one of his most obscure works from you know, the early 1900s, and uh, I came across this particular passage. And this is what he has to say about Matthew chapter six. He says, I want you to consider, consider the lilies of the field. You see, a lily grows where it's put, and it doesn't put up a fuss. And I love that. A lily just grows where it's put. We are always inclined to say I would be all right if I were only somewhere else. However, if our spiritual lives, get this, if our spiritual lives do not grow where we are, they will grow nowhere. And here's the principle you need to understand, that even in the wilderness, in the places where you think that no good can come from this circumstance, God can do some of his best work there. God, there's, there's always something to be gained even in our most challenging and difficult of circumstances. I remember some of the most challenging circumstances that I went through in my life was when my youngest daughter was born. She was actually born with a series of congenital heart defects and that all of which had to be surgically repaired in the first couple of years of her life. And I can tell you that those three open heart surgeries for my daughter were some of the most difficult trying times in our family. I remember just being filled with anxiety and fear and I had no idea how things were going to turn out. But this is what I remember about that time. And even though I would never wanna go back and experience that time again, as difficult as it was, I can look back and know that there was something that I gained there that I would not have gained at any other time in my life. There was an intimacy that I gained in my relationship with God. There was a closeness, a sense that I knew that God was with me. I understood the power of prayer and they understood the power of word unlike any other time in my entire life. There were passages that just leaped off the page because I felt like God was speaking just to me. You ever been there? And I understood the power of people in your life. When people would surround you and, and the family of the church of God would surround you in prayer. There was something that I learned that I could only have learned how to, going through the trials that we went through. Here's what you need to know, that even when you're stuck in the wilderness, this gap between I'm not where I want to be and I don't like where I'm at, there's something to be gained. It may seem like God's not at work, but let me, let me set the record straight. He is at work and sometimes he's doing his best work in the wilderness. Now listen, there's a part of your Bible that I wanted to point out to you today that you may not have noticed before, um, but it's this one page that separates the Old Testament from the New Testament. You ever noticed it? 
We go from the book of Malachi, the close, the end of the Old Testament, into the New Testament, the book of Matthew. But most of your Bibles have one page that separates these two. Now, what most people would think is that the Old Testament flows historically right into the New Testament. Actually, the Old Testament is not in chronological order. Historically speaking, Nehemiah and Ezra would be the closed historically of the Old Testament. Malachi was the last prophet to speak in the Old Testament. And then it flows right into the New Testament with Matthew and the birth of Jesus. Now, most people think that those things just kind of flowed right into each other. But biblical scholars would tell you that this one little page in your Bible actually represents about 400 years of history. 400 years where we have absolutely no record of God speaking to his people, interacting with his people. Matter of fact, this is called, the scholars would call this the intertestamental period because it's between the two testaments. A lot of people call it the silent years of God where it seems like God just went dark. And many people would assume that God had finally given up on his people. He had finally given up hope of seeing them ever turn from their ways. And God, God just went completely dark for 400 years. And you would think that until you do a more careful study of some of the historical events that happened in that 400 year period. There are three most notable historical events that we'll highlight here today. Uh, at the close of the book of Malachi and the book of Nehemiah, the Persian Empire was uh, reigning the ancient world of that particular time. In about 350, 330 BC, uh, the Greek Empire overthrew the Persian Empire with Alexander the Great. Now, many of you guys know Alexander the Great from, uh, from your history class. You know that he was one of the greatest military strategists that ever lived. Matter of fact, in a very short period of time, he conquered much of, most of, if not all of, the ancient world. It was an incredible military feat at that particular time. Now, he didn't live very long, but one of his last decrees as the king um, is he sent out an edict and he said, everyone that lives within any of my conquering kingdom, I want them to all speak the same language. So that if I or any of my generals and military people showed up in any town, village, in my, in my kingdom, everybody could understand each other. And so he instituted that everybody would speak the language Greek, actually specifically speaking Koine Greek. Now that may sound familiar because much of your New Testament, if not most of your New Testament, is actually written in Koine Greek. It's because it's what they spoke in the ancient times. Fast forward a couple hundred years and the Roman Empire came into power. And the Roman Empire established two very important things. Number one, they established what's called the peace, the peace of Rome. It's actually in history books, it's called the Pax Romana. This is the peace of Rome. It was, in this particular time frame in history was characterized by an unprecedented period. This is unprecedented because any other time in history, you've never seen this level of peace, security, and stability in this particular region. There was always wars and turnover of power, but in this particular period of time, it was, it was characterized by an unprecedented level of peace, security, and stability. The second thing that the Romans brought is they brought roads. They built, they built an intricate network of roads, creating this infrastructure that allowed for speed of travel for their military and it increased the efficiency of their armies and communication between various cities. Now, 
considering all the things that take, took place in the intertestamental period, the time where most would assume that God was silent. If you were God and you were about to unleash the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ancient world and you wanted to do it in a way that would spread it fast and far, what would you need? You would need, number one, a common language so the message could be heard and understood by all. Number two, you would need regional stability so the message could go out safely and unencumbered. And number three, you would need an, in, an in, intricate network of roads or an infrastructure that ensured the fast and efficient transmission of the message to the entire known world. Now let me just tell you this. The reason that you and I are sitting in church today the reason that you and I know about the message of Jesus Christ, the reason that we've heard the gospel is in large part because of the historical events that took place in the intertestamental period, the time which most people thought that God was silent and that he had stopped his work. Friends, God never stops working. He's always at work when you don't see it, even when you don't feel it, he is always at work. And the principle is this, if you are caught in this wilderness where you're not where you wanna be and you don't like where you're at and you feel like God has gone dark or he has gone silent in your life. Let me remind you of this. Never confuse God's silence with his absence. He is always at work in your life and in mine, working to accomplish his purposes in his timing. And trust me, his purposes, his purposes are good and his timing is always right. That's because that's who he is and that's just what our God does. So if you're caught in the wilderness today, let me just remind you today, God ain't forgotten you. He didn't lead you out here to die, no. I think God is about to do the greatest works that he's ever done in your life. He wants to reveal himself to you in a way that will blow your mind. We just need to fill this void or this gap with the right kind of thinking and applying what we know to be true about God, that he's good and he's in control to our current circumstances. We need to prioritize our time with him so that we could be filled with the kind of power that will allow us to prevail even the most dirt and difficult circumstances. We need to change our perspective, don't we? That even in the darkest times of our life, God can do some of his greatest work. Let's thank God for that right now. Father, we are so grateful that you are at work, that you ain't forgot us. I know there are many of us in here that feel like, God, we're caught in the greatest trial of our entire life. It feels like sometimes, God, you're silent, but we know that you're not. We know that behind the scenes you are working for the good because we love you and we know we are called according to your purpose. So God, would you remind us today of that truth? Would you help us to apply what we know to be true about you to our current circumstances, God? We wanna give you all the credit and all the glory. God, we love you and pray this in the power of Jesus. Amen.